and uh, hope you hope to be with you know, the folks out there at the lake are able to get in some good time of fellowship and worship. Uh, hey, about I think it was about 11 years ago, I did a, a kind of a medium-sized series called the B Attitudes, based on Matthew 5. But just a couple of years later, I decided to go through the whole Sermon on the Mount, which was a rather teaching once a month, a rather lengthy series, about four years. <laughs> uh, and uh, so I covered the Beatitudes again, uh, it, more briefly. Today, I want to go back and take a look at the first two of the Beatitudes, which are central to our walk as Christ followers, particularly inside of the Lord's table that we're going to take today. Uh, and to set the context for those Beatitudes, we need to take a, a brief background, somewhat brief background, on the whole Sermon on the Mount. Now, when I finished that long series and I stepped down from the podium, Larry was doing the tech and immediately, immediately played the Hallelujah Chorus. And I started to think as I was walking back, are they really that happy that I finished? <laughs> but, you know, Larry turned it into a very thankful and, and uh, appreciative uh, event, which I, it means a lot to me. Uh, so don't worry, we're not going to go through the whole sermon on the Mount today. Uh, but uh, we do need to take a look at why the Beatitudes, the, the two we're going to look at today, are so vital to us uh, in our daily walk. This, as background, the Sermon on the Mount is the longest exposition of Jesus' teaching in one place. Uh, it takes up three whole chapters straight through, and it's the singularly best known of his teachings, at least by name. Uh, and uh, it also is the subject of some controversy among Christians. Some liberal theologians uh, believe that it is the sum and substance of the gospel. In order to be saved, you need to do all that is in the Sermon on the Mount. Others believe it's not gospel, but law, and that, uh, that Jesus was exposing the, the, the excesses of the scribes and the rabbis and giving us the true sense of the law. There's another group that says, it's just too hard to apply this in my life. I simply cannot turn the other cheek when somebody hits me or offends me. And then there's a, another group uh, among the dispensationalists that say that the Sermon on the Mount is really a constitution for the future millennial kingdom and cannot apply to present-day believers. I don't like any of those interpretations. Uh, I could be wrong, but I don't see the Sermon on the Mount as the whole gospel. And while it helps for us to understand the spirit of God's law, it's not law in itself. And I simply cannot shake the, the thought that of those two latter groups, uh, that Jesus is saying here, I present for your viewing pleasure this lush pasture that you can look at, but don't touch. It's not for you you ignorant sheep. Now, don't get me wrong. According to the chief shepherd, we're all pretty much dumb sheep. But my view is that whatever Jesus intended for direct application from the sermon, which we'll figure out in eternity, nonetheless, this passage is profitable 
today for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and instruction in righteousness. So uh, there's actually another dispensationalist uh, who uh, we tend to be here, uh, professor of Greek and Bible at Cedarville College in, uh, in the 1970s. It says, the Sermon on the Mount applies today. His name was George Lawler. And he said, this passage is not basic fundamental law. Law cannot produce the state of blessedness laid out in the text. Rather, the quality of life described as is the necessary product of grace alone. Jesus states the outward legal requirements of the law and then carries his listeners beyond the letter of the law to the true spirit and intent of the law. But how? Well, that's exactly the point. You and I cannot fulfill the law. Only Christ can. We can't live up to the lifestyle portrayed by Jesus in the sermon in our own strength. That's why we so desperately need him. So, the life of the believer described by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, including the Beatitudes, is a life of grace and glory, which comes from God alone, not by our power or our efforts. And to make this quality of life the product of human efforts, as does the liberal, is the height of overestimation of mankind and the underestimation of his depravity. So, but to relegate this entire passage to a millennial lifestyle, as do some of the dispensationalists, is to rob the church of, his, of its greatest statement of true Christian living. It also might be helpful for those uh, dispensationalists to understand that the world presented in the sermon cannot possibly be the future millennial kingdom because it includes tax collectors and unjust officials and thieves and hypocrites and false prophets. So, Jesus made it clear that the Spirit of Christ goes beyond the outward demand of the law. The Christian, though not under the law, is above the law. Not in terms that you might think of for a corrupt politician, but rather for in the sense that it does not call us to meet the standards of the law, but a higher standard, which involves the heart Paul said that the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus teaches that a born-again believer is to live a certain life naturally as a result of being a believer. It's not a way of salvation, neither is it only a message under the law, but it obviously goes beyond the law. It presents Christian discipleship which can be wrought in the soul of an individual only by the power of God. Instead of instructing us how to be saved, it tells us what it is like to be saved, to be a true disciple. Virtually every section of the sermon is repeated somewhere else in substance elsewhere in the New Testament. The main point I'm trying to get across here is that we must stop making excuses for applying what the sermon says. Uh, we all have something vital to learn here. Now, the context that we see in Matthew 4 is that Jesus is, selects the 12 disciples. He's going around healing and, uh, and uh, casting out demons. And so, naturally, large crowds start to follow him. And so we read here in chapter 5, verse 1, And seeing the multitudes... 
he went up into a mountain, and when he was set, his disciples came unto him. Now, that first phrase, and seeing the multitudes, what does that signify? Is it just a preface or just telling us mechanically what he did before he spoke? Or does it mean something more? Why is the phrase there? What did Jesus see? So we might look at other passages to give us a clue. In Matthew 9, it tells us that Jesus was going through all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness. Seeing the crowds, the multitudes, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. So when he looked upon the multitudes, it seems to me that what he saw were lost sheep, maybe in physical misery, emotional distress, but most in danger of spending eternity in hell. So he had compassion for them. So let me ask you, what do you see when you look upon people out there in large crowds? Uh, in Luke 13, Jesus laments the faithlessness and the coming destruction of Jerusalem. And speaking about Luke 13, Charles Spurgeon exhorted that, quote, the more we become what we shall be, the more will compassion rule our hearts. The Lord Jesus Christ, who is the pattern and mirror of perfect manhood, what said he concerning the sins and woes of Jerusalem? He knew Jerusalem must perish. Did he bury his pity beneath the fact of divine decree and steal his heart by the thought of the sovereignty or the justice that would be resplendent in the city's destruction? No, not he. But with eyes gushing like founts, Jesus cried, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to him. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you are not willing. Spurgeon continues, If you would be like Jesus, you must be tender and very pitiful. I beseech you, let your hearts be moved with pity. Do not endure to see the spiritual death of mankind. Be in agony as often as you contemplate the ruin of any soul of the seed of Adam. You know, my job, perhaps like many of yours, takes me to different places regularly. And when I walk around, you know, sometimes downtown or in, a, in an office building or in the courthouse, I often am caught up in my work, focused on things that need to be done, perhaps sometimes conflict, or if the truth be known, just simply making a living, doing what I am being paid to do. So can I honestly say that I consistently see people as Jesus sees them? That's an honest, honestly, that's a hard one for me, at least. Yet, after Jesus appeared to the apostles after the resurrection, he told them in John 20, Peace be with you. 
As the Father has sent me, I also send you. This implies to me that we are to carry out the work that was stated by Jesus, which we call the Great Commission. If we follow his example, we will see the lost with compassion. In John 4, the apostles are trying to get Jesus to take a bite to eat, but he responds that he has food that they don't know about. This baffles them. Then he said, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest? In other words, we got time. We can put it off. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields that they are white for harvest. Already he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal, so that he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you have not labored. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Looking back at Matthew 9, uh, we see that harvest analogy again. In verse 37, he says, then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Therefore, beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest. So it, it just seems to me that Jesus gave his disciples something to do with a sense of urgency, to look with compassion on the fields of the lost, the multitudes. And some of us will be sowers or gardeners, and some of us will be reapers or harvesters. But understand this. Let me just, if, you, if you'll allow me here. Uh, some people feel very uncomfortable uh, being an evangelist or witnessing, even though they're an evangelical Christian. And I understand that, you know, we all have those fears. Uh, and we should constantly be building ourselves up to the point where we can share our faith openly and in a, an effective way. But all of us can be sowers, okay? That, it's a, something as simple as being kind to people, going out of your way to help them. And then when you're finished, just say, God bless you. There's a, hundreds of different ways that we can be sowers and then hopefully get, get ourselves to the point of being, uh, being reapers. But nonetheless, we have that as our mission. We need to be involved in seeing with compassion the loss that are out there. All right, on to Matthew 5, 2. He opened his mouth and taught them. Well, who did he teach? Well, the people that were there, probably, who were already or who wanted to be his disciples, perhaps. Uh, and, uh, you know, who's included in the word disciples? Well, sometimes it means the 12 that were chosen, but other times, like here, when there's other people present, you know, there's really no indication that the word includes only the 12. The word disciple means a learner, not only beginners, but even wiser, mature, disciplined, and experienced learners who know they have not got it all figured out. Hopefully, the word disciple includes all of us. So the overall goal of the sermon 
is first the internal state of mind and heart, which is the result of a regenerative call of God. In other words, salvation by his grace, an essential for true discipleship. Then as a result of that inward regeneration, an outward conduct and demeanor follows, which is the witness and evidence of true discipleship. It's what C.S. Lewis calls Christ helping us become perfect. At the end of Matthew 5, Jesus commanded us to become perfect as our Heavenly Father is perfect. And if that phrase has ever stumped you, you're not alone. It causes a lot of people to throw up their hands and include, I simply can't do that today, so this must not apply to me. But this outward conduct and demeanor demonstrates Christ working in us, in us along the path to perfection, which none of us will achieve in this lifetime, but what Christ will complete in us in eternity. However, if God's word does not influence how we live today, how a particular person lives today who claims to be a Christian, it probably did not take root on the inside in the first place. In other words, Jesus, as Jesus teaches in Matthew 7, you shall know them by their fruits. Now, some people hear but remain stubborn in their unbelief. How can those who do believe, who do not believe, comprehend teaching like blessed are those who are poor in spirit, those that mourn, the meek, the reviled, the persecuted. Now to them, that's craziness. Now, if that's the gospel, they might say, well, with good news like that, who needs tragedy and pain? Calling these conditions blessed is exactly the opposite of how the world sees those conditions. Sermon is intended to exhort believers toward a daily walk to which true disciples then and now are called. Now, uh, in past, uh, I and others have talked about several aspects of why and how we minister to the poor. At the same time, we need to, un we need to understand that God loves the whole world, the rich as well as the poor. Because the materially well-off can be just as miserable in their empty and purposeless lives. If we become too engrossed in our own problems and cumbers, we will never reach out to the lost. Jesus set the example by going out to the multitudes. What should we do? If we fail to see people as Jesus does, it is because we haven't yet developed godly compassion. He had compassion for those weak in faith, and so he reached out to save them. He fed the 5,000 to take care of their physical needs, and then he met their spiritual needs. So we are called to find a way to help others first, and then we may be in a better position to reach their hearts. So in essence, these first two verses say, he sees the multitude, he has compassion, he goes up and he sits down and he looks out at his working material and taught his disciples, including you and me today, what our lives should, should look like in order to show compassion to the, to the multitudes, the lost. Now, how is that? Jesus uses an exceptional word in an exceptional manner to give an exceptional message. The, word, the Greek word for blessed describes 
an oasis in a desert, one who prospers, one who is unaffected by the world of weakness, poverty, and death. It seems to designate an inner state or condition unaffected by outside forces. In the Bible, blessed is the state of those whose heart is indwelt by God and who therefore walk with him day by day. It's an attitude. The word, and you might wonder, where does the word beatitude comes from? Uh, it's actually derived from the Latin word for blessed, which is beatus. Let's go on to uh, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, in the Greek, uh, after blessed, uh, the verbs are or shall be do not appear. Rather, the Greek embraces the idea that, the, that we are now blessed and shall be blessed forever. So just how are the poor in spirit blessed? You know, in, in, in I and other teachers have addressed what is often called the prosperity gospel. Uh, this is the teaching of some today that God blesses the faithful materially and in health. And if you're not blessed in this way, you are simply not being faithful, also known as you're not giving enough to our church or our ministry. Uh, and we and others have labeled this as heresy. Jesus instead preaches what might be called a poverty gospel, at least in a sense. Uh, before getting into that more, let me restate that the Bible teaches it's neither wrong nor immoral to be rich nor poor. In fact, whatever state we find ourselves may be just where God wants us in order to teach us valuable lessons. Being rich, however, extends beyond material wealth. Last month in, the, in finishing up the Head to Heart series, we went over wealth and poverty and said it's not a sin to be wealthy, but it's often harder for the wealthy to see their need for God. This is what C.S. Lewis says in Mere Christianity when he highlights that when Jesus said it was harder for a rich man to get into heaven than for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle, that includes not just material wealth, but the wealth of natural gifts, like intelligence, health, popularity, or a good upbringing, can make one satisfied with themselves. He puts it this way, everyone says you are a nice chap, and you agree with them. You believe all this niceness is your own duty, so why drag God into it? But Lewis also says there is, it's different for what he calls the nasty people. You know, the small, low, lonely, sensual, unbalanced folks, what we would call the poor. If they try to be good, he says, they learn in double quick time that they need help. It is Christ or nothing for them. And James reminds us that we should neither favor the rich nor respect the, disrespect the poor. He says, when we do this, uh, we make distinctions among ourselves and become judges with evil motives that God chose the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he promised to those who love him in James 2. Now, there are many causes for poverty. And to be honest, uh, Proverbs makes clear that one of those is lack of wisdom and effort. You know, you, if you read the Proverbs, you'll see the words fool and sloth and sluggard. Uh, and in fact, 
uh, in Proverbs, those who are prosperous are often those who work hard and wisely save. But Proverbs 30 helps us uh, see a balance in trusting God to give us what we need. It says there that do not give me poverty or riches. Feed me with, with my allotted bread, lest I become satisfied and act deceptively and say, who is the Lord? Or lest I become poor and steal and harm in the name of my God. So the, the text tells us that both poverty and health have their problems. The rich, as Paul warns in First. Timothy 6, place their trust in the uncertainty of riches. The poor are tempted to covet and even steal. So what does it mean to be poor here in this beatitude? Uh, the Greek word patokos uh, is used for poor here, uh, and it comes from the word patoso, which denotes a shrinking from something to cower or to cringe. It describes a person who slinks about and crouches here and there begging alms, kind of like Lazarus in Luke 16, who was uh, laid at his gate, covered with sores, longing to be fed with the crumbs which were falling from the rich man's table. Now, Patokos poor is contrasted with the Greek panesis, it's another word for poor in Scripture to describe those who are poor to the extent that they must work hard for their livelihood, kind of like a single mom working two jobs to provide for her family. The difference here is that Patoko's poor cannot work. They must beg, maybe like a quadriplegic. So why did the Holy Spirit select this word, Patoko's, for this particular text? Uh, Greek scholar Spiros Zodiades states this, it was to convey his diagnosis of mankind. He is empty, poor, helpless. He cannot work out his own salvation. He is patokos, not panesis. He needs mercy from outside himself, and this is the condition of fallen man. No one from his own level can help him. His help must come from someone who is superior from above, from God. So we, got to, we have to understand that to be filled with Christ is to be empty of self and of our pride. Believers are blessed when we realize our complete emptiness and confess our total dependence upon him because we become spiritual beggars. And with him, we can face trials, temptations, poverty, pain, even death, like the martyrs, without anxiety or fear. Uh, there's a doctrine uh, called the depravity of man, uh, that man has nothing to offer God that will equal, earn, or merit God's righteousness. You know, and Paul gives us the bad news in Romans 3, where he says, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together we have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Now, we look around at people, and we say, well, there's a good person, like Mother Teresa, and there's bad people, maybe Vladimir Putin. But that's all relative to each other. I may have said this before, but one time after a, a snowfall, I got out to shovel next to our, we have a White House, okay? Uh, and I was shoveling and thinking, you know, just 
doing the stuff. Then I look up at the house compared to the snow, and I saw for the first time how dingy the White House that I thought was perfectly white was compared to the snow. Uh, and uh, yeah, that's a, that's a problem. <laughs> compared to God's righteousness, squeaky clean pastor types are just really dirty bums. When we recognize our spiritual poverty, there's nothing there to protect or preserve. It's gone. And indeed, to be more accurate, there's such a huge debt that we could never repay it. That's the kind and the extent of our poverty. But what does it mean to be poor in spirit? For this verse to make sense, it's got to be taken as a whole. The poor are not blessed by God for being poor, no more than the rich for being rich. Rather, it's poverty of the spirit, the inner man, that is blessed. When we accept our own inadequacy with submission deep within, then we have what God loves, a broken and a contrite heart. This poverty of spirit is the first mark of true discipleship. It's a prerequisite for acquiring the other Beatitudes, spiritual beggars who have abandoned pride and self-sufficiency and who rely totally on God for support. They are then in a position to assume the mournful, meek, hungry, merciful, pure, and peaceful disposition that we see in the other Beatitudes. The poor in spirit don't insist, as I have done many times, on their own way and demand their own rights, plans, and schemes. They don't grasp all that is theirs and, and with stubborn refusal to sacrifice for others. They're not fixated on their profit or gain, but rather God's purposes and goals. Our hands must be empty before they can be filled by him. There must be nothing there. There is not something that we do in and of ourselves. We don't even empty ourselves. We can't make ourselves poor. It's evidence. It happens as a result of God working in us when we see ourselves as who we really are. We have nothing to bring to him, nothing to lay claim to him, nothing to cause God to act graciously on our behalf. It is his mercy, his not, not getting what we deserve, but it's all his grace getting what we do not deserve. When, when does God use, what does God use to bring all this to pass? How does it happen? He uses a variety of ways, certainly through his word. His law is a righteous standard none of us can achieve. He uses the Holy Spirit to bring conviction when we inevitably fail to meet that standard. And sometimes he does it through a tragedy in our lives, a crisis in our family, sickness, economic loss, emotional, relational, or even an actual earthquake, or just a sin that comes out in our lives and becomes obvious. Whatever it is, God uses those events to bring us to himself. So what's the end result of being poor in spirit? Uh, to be clear, we don't earn a place in the kingdom of God by deciding to be poor in spirit. Rather, we become poor in spirit when we fully are convinced that we cannot earn entrance into the kingdom, and it's only by his grace that we are allowed in. When we understand we have nothing to give, when we become beggars in spirit who stoop before God with empty hands, we have 
the kingdom. It is ours. We own it now, gift-wise, and we will enjoy it in the future because he looks down on our emptiness in his infinite love and mercifully, mercifully allows us to partake. Going on to verse 4. Jesus says, Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Think about that. Is that a typo? How can those who hurt emotionally really be blessed? On its face, it seems not only counterintuitive, but also kind of like a contradiction in terms. In other words, you just know without much thinking that the two should not coexist. In what sense or in what way is the Bible telling us that we can discover comfort and joy through sorrow? Well, let's take a look here. Uh, again, the, the Greek for mourning, pentheo, is to grieve, lament, mourn over a severe or painful loss. There are nine different Greek words expressing Greek, and pentheo is the most intensive term of internal mourning. It indicates a self-contained grief that may or may not be seen by others, but is not, does not involve an excessive display of pain. Mourning over what? Well, the verse doesn't say. Uh, normally, we think of mourning after the loss of a loved one, a child, a spouse, and certainly maybe even a parent. Isn't it usually with wails of anguish and pain instead, though, when we people face the consequences of their sin? The poor in spirit will be sensitive to sin and therefore quick to mourn over it. Yeah, that's how the world approaches it, when they're caught in the consequences of their sin, you know, with their hand in the cookie jar as the little boy cries as being led off to the bathroom for a talk. Uh, instead, Jesus here redirects our focus from consequences to genuine sorrow for the sin itself, then to repentance, contrition, and confession leading to a plea for mercy and grace. So this includes not just the sins that are apparent to all, but also those hidden, secret sins that nobody else knows about. These are usually the most difficult to confront because we think we're getting away with them. And, uh, but is there any sin that God doesn't see? Uh, David asked in uh, Psalm 19, asked God to cleanse him from secret sins. Now, now, not to be grammatically technical here, but the Greek word for mourn here is in what they call linear action. It's not an action that is finished, which I understand is punctiliar, nor a completed action that has continuous results, which would be the perfect tense. Linear action, on the other hand, is continued, regular, and repeated action. Now, think about that. This does not imply that Christians are to constantly walk around with sorrow on their faces. Rather, a Christian must continually adopt an attitude of mourning over his or her sin. So therefore, the prevalence of mourning in our lives depends on the prevalence of sin. 
Now, Martin Luther happened to have some pretty serious sins, both early and late in life. But when he published his 95 Theses for Debate, the very first one was when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, Repent, he called for the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. How do we mourn? When a Christian faces his transgressions, mourning involves more than just saying, I'm sorry, over an act or thought that violates the holiness of God. So, uh, as an example, if you'll allow me, let's return to our friend the prodigal son in Luke 15. Yeah, I know I taught a couple of, pe- of messages on this last, just last fall, but it has so many applications, I want to go back there to examine some steps that will help us get a, a true sense of what it means to mourn for sin. Uh, I, I think I left some blanks in your handout, so you may want to try to fill those in here. The first one is that we are to recognize the lies of the world. Yeah, while the prodigal son was at home with his dad, he started to think about the grass on the other side. And uh, some of us may remember doing this. Wouldn't it be nice to be out on my own, to be independent? I could get away from my parents' control and my, and my mom's chart, and I could choose my own friends. I could stay up as late as I want. I could do whatever I want all day long, anything. And the prodigal son determined to do just that. Later, his older brother complained that the prodigal son had wasted his father's money on harlots. Now, do you think perhaps that the prodigal son felt like uh, the principles upon which his father had built his life, his home, and his business were old-fashioned maybe, or he could do a better job? Yeah, there's a natural tendency for children to reject what their parents value. And to be honest, you know, being older doesn't mean omniscience doesn't equate to truth or accuracy necessarily. Christy and all my kids would tell you that I've been wrong before and they fully expect me to be wrong again. On the other hand, age at least means more life experience. And sometimes older people have learned lessons in life that young people simply have not faced. So there's an old saying that learning from the mistakes of others is the cheapest education you'll ever get. We know that the prodigal was deceived in believing the lie. Without his father's constraints, he he could fulfill all of his desires, which were basically covetousness and lust. Mourning over his attitude toward his father was the farthest thing from his mind as long as he had resources. Now, part of the ritual of leaving your parents' home is that pesky problem of how am I going to pay for my independence? And uh, that forces a lot of young people to get a job, which is a good thing. And apparently the prodigal's family had money. So he was able to take an advance on that and not necessarily work, go out and have some fun. But that money was simply a paper covering over his eyes, blinding him to his real condition. He could indulge himself in pleasures for a season, but eventually his lifestyle dissipated 
his financial as well as his spiritual potential. Now, of course, in the parable, we tend to focus on the father's amazing forgiveness and joy when his son returns. And we forget that the prodigal committed gross sins, and even with his father's forgiveness, there were lifelong consequences. Now, today, we would think in terms of STDs, of AIDS, of cognitive impairment from substance abuse, and not to mention the emotional and relational consequences. Whether young or old, we must honestly evaluate or measure our ideas against the only true standard, which is God's Word. Now, for many, that's easier said than done, but if you pause, think, and exercise the discernment, the discernment to reject the false ideas of the culture, we can avoid a lot of pain and sorrow. Next point is view trials as God's classroom. God just happened to time uh, a mighty famine to occur when the prodigal's money ran out. He, the money had given him a sense of security, independence, and power. But when his resources were gone, he had to retreat to a new master, the same type of authority from which he had run. Only now his new friends were pigs, literally. He used, God used this experience in the prodigal's life to teach him a valuable lesson. Now, we have to recognize that God does not always rescue us from our hardships, even from tragedies in life. Instead, he uses them for our benefit as a part of his larger plan, which we do not understand. Suffering is one way that God uses to produce endurance and growth in the life of a Christian. Uh, Peter, James, Paul, and Jesus all wrote or all talked about how God uses suffering to develop godliness and perseverance in all of us. They didn't just talk about it, they lived it. Third point is understanding that while mourning may begin with sorrow over consequences, it must end with repentance before God. Prodigal was initially grieved over his deplorable conditions, but he eventually came to understand his unworthiness before God and his Father. Uh, worldly sorrow is self-centered and focuses on the consequences of sin. When those consequences come and tragedy strikes or things don't go well, we usually are dejected or distraught over the immediate damage uh, or hurt to ourselves and perhaps others. Godly sorrow, on the other hand, is concerned about how God has been offended by my sin. Worldly sorrow draws us away from God to despair. Godly sorrow always drives us to God for forgiveness and reconciliation. The fourth point, fourth point is see offenses through the eyes of those we have wronged. So the prodigal son began to relive his past family relationships. And so he understood, finally, his bankrupt condition before God and man. He saw his offense through the eyes of his father. And he determined in his mind what he would say to his father. Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called 
your son. True mourning and repentance does not come from being sorry for the consequences of our sin, but by understanding the hurt we cause others and seeing the cause of our sin, which is willful rebellion against God and his holy standards. David in Psalm 51 says, For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned. So what's the end result of mourning? You will be comforted. It comes from the Greek parakaleo. Para, alongside, and kaleo, to call. Jesus drew in and confronted his disciples prior to his ascension. But before he left, he said in John 14, I will pray the Father, and he will give you another comforter, that he may abide with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it sees him not, neither knows him, but you know him, for he dwells with you and shall be with you. I will not leave you comfortless. I will come to you, but the Comforter, which is the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he shall teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance. Whatsoever I have said unto you. So Jesus reassures us that believers, believers who mourn over sin will always be comforted by the Holy Spirit. In just a few minutes, uh, we will all observe and, if fitting, take part in the Lord's table here. And it may just be that these two Beatitudes, being poor in spirit and mourn, mourning over sin, are the most appropriate to prepare for communion between us and our Maker. It's when we recognize a sacrifice made for our undeserved eternity that we should be filled with compassion for others, for those who don't comprehend and have not accepted the free and great gift of salvation. Probably all know about uh, after his sin with Bathsheba, the prophet Nathan confronted King David and brought him to a state of repentance. And in Psalm 51, he expresses that poverty of spirit and his mourning over that sin. And he said, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence, and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation, and uphold me with a willing spirit. Would you please stand with me? And uh, we're going to recite the end of that, that, uh, that psalm here together. All right. Uh, it's Psalm 51. <laughs> you have it in your, your handout, if you would. It's not John 3.16. <laughs> okay. Do you guys have it back there? Do you have Psalm 51? <laughs>